All right. So, um, things that's lucky about having a child in the youth group is that you're around as they're starting to make plans, and um, somebody realizes that, oh, yeah, everyone who normally teaches an auditorium class is not going to be here. Hey, why don't you do it? Uh, that's pretty much how I got selected to, to teach tonight. Um, like I said before, I'm always pleased to do it. Uh, I'm glad to teach. Um, this lesson, at least on paper, is about twice as long as the eight-minute lesson you just heard. So that means we're going to be in for a long uh, 16 minutes here. <laughs> I hope I can stretch it out a little bit more than that, as we've got uh, about 45 minutes to fill. Uh, hopefully we can do that. So um, we are going to be in Acts 2, 36, for this lesson. We're going to spend a lot of time in Acts 2 as well as incorporating some other scriptures as we go. So I started to think about what I could And one of the things that um, came to mind uh, was uh, the position of Christ, uh, what positions he held, uh, what positions he continues to hold. Um, as opposed to the nature of Christ, which are two different subjects, and I hope that we can kind of explore that tonight. So in Acts 2 and verse 36, we see um, a position, or two positions, that are stated. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you see the positions that are laid out there, both Lord and Christ. We're going to explore those tonight, what it means to, that he is both Lord and Christ, because those are two different positions, even though they have some overlapping commonalities. Um, the other aspect that I is this idea of being made, because it says there that he is made these two positions. So that's different than something that comes from nature, something that's inherent to him. Um, in this case, it's an appointment. He's been appointed to those positions, so I do want to look at those. So, first off, let's look at the context of this. Uh, a verse in isolation is always a scary thought. You don't want to ever just take one verse, isolate it out, and then try to make a whole doctrine out of it. You can get yourself in trouble doing that, um, as some of our denominational brothers and sisters have shown us. Very quick, you can go down a bad path. So, we do want to look at context, and we want to put that together. Uh, I was recently reading an article, and I was exploring this idea of context, and said, what is, what is more important, truth or context? And I really think that you can't come to a truth without understanding some context. So let's take a look at context here. This is Acts 2. In Acts 2, this is Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival called the Festival of Weeks or Shavuot. Uh, it was celebrated exactly seven weeks and one day after the Passover. So if you do the math there, that's 49 plus 1. That's 50 days, which is where we get the... Um, the uh, Penta from in the Pentecost. Uh, it was a celebration of the first uh, harvest, so it was a, a wheat harvest. And as they would gather up their first fruits, the farmers would come to town, uh, specifically to Jerusalem, to offer uh, their offerings of their first fruits at the temple. So there's people coming from all over. If you look back at, um, let's see here, Acts 2. 1 through 4, the very beginning of the chapter, we'll see where some of these people come from. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came, uh, heaven, came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house that, where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, 
And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, it says that they came to speak tongues. Well, the necessity of speaking tongues actually uh, is pointed out for us in um, verse 9. If you're still there in 2, starting in 9, it says there are uh, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pentas, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. So if you look there, there are people from all over the known world at that time, all over the Jewish world at that time, and they all came for this particular festival. So it was a necessity for them to have the um, Holy Spirit come to them and give them this ability to speak in tongues. So they are speaking in tongues when we hear this. Now the speaker of the section that we've been studying is actually Peter. Um, Peter uh, steps up and delivers the main sermon that we have there, which is also the first gospel sermon, uh, also profitable for, for study in and of itself. And I would highly encourage you to go back, if you haven't studied that in a while, to go back with that. Um, Peter actually starts his part of the address in um, verse 14 and says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah, and all who dwell in Jerusalem. He addressed them as uh, men of Judah and the people of, uh, that were dwelling in Jerusalem at that time. Um, and they were able to understand him, and he was able to deliver this message to them. So his lesson um, starts with a, an interesting way, because he, he starts with defending the, his own sobriety and sobriety of the other men there, as they seemed, um, according to some that were apparently present, to seem drunk. Um, but he points out that it was... Far, far too early, and that they were not drunk, um, that these men uh, came preaching uh, a message of power and a message of truth. Um, and he begins uh, in verse 16 and 17 to uh, quote from the prophet Joel. Uh, and I'm not going to read all of these. I just kind of want to point out some of the things. Um, and th- within that prophecy, he points out the, the pouring out of the Spirit, which is important because that's what's going on with them. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. In, uh, okay. in uh, verse 22, he begins to really hone in on the gospel. He uh, starts to talk about Jesus. He talks about Jesus' life, perfect life, death, uh, conquering of death by Jesus with his resurrection. And then in, um, then in starting in 25, he starts to point out David. And, um, of course, being Jews, they would have known who David was, looked up to David. And anyone who uh, could be quoted um, as David calling him Lord, as he does in verse 34, uh, would catch their attention. And so uh, he points out David. He points out the fact that David's dead. And then he uses a quote from uh, Psalm 110. And this is actually in 34 and 35 for us. It says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Which kind of leads us into verse 36. Here he's pointing out that his Lord, God, the Father, has appointed um, my Lord. There's two Lords being spoken of there. So one's the Father and one's the Son. uh, Who... And 36, he points out, is in fact Jesus. So uh, we have him uh, being appointed Lord here. 
So, and then he finally gets to the verse that we're studying. And once again, I want to read that out loud to everybody. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you uh, crucified. So we have several verses, I mean, several phrases within this verse that I do want to look at. Um, all the house of Israel, he does want, to, he does want everyone who uh, is present everyone who is a Jew to understand that this Lord that he's talking about, this Messiah, this Lord, is theirs. So he says all the house of Israel, and he wants them to know for certain, he doesn't want any doubt to be left in their mind, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, and that's the main uh, part of the verse we're going to look at, this Jesus, whom you crucified, pointing out very specifically the man Jesus, who has been a fairly common name at that time. So he went a step further, the one you crucified, the one that was just crucified. So um, he's very specific about who he wants to understand it, who has made this appointment, and who has been appointed to these two offices. So let's talk about this idea of God has made him. I think if we look at the nature of Jesus, we can start with John 1. This is going to be verses 1 through 3. You're probably familiar with this set of verses. Uh, What it says is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word that he's speaking of here is Jesus. And he says, from the beginning. So, at the very start of all things, Jesus was there. And he was with the Father. And he um, uh, was with God. And then it goes on to say that he was God. So when it says, back in our original text too, that he's been made Lord, some people would interpret that, that he was made God. But he wasn't made God. He already existed as God. So it's another term for Lord that we're going to have to study to understand what appointment he was made. Because he was already God. Even from the beginning, he was God. He was also before all 1, 15 through 20. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Now, in this uh, set of verses, we do see that um, he was a creative force. Again, pointed out just as it was in John. Uh, It um, supports what we've already read from John. And that he was there in the beginning. And that all things that were created were through him. And even in verse 17, it says that he was, and I'll read it, and he is before all things. So he is before all things. Yes, sir. Right. 
Yes. Yes, and, and that's absolutely true. Um, as Martha's pointing out, um, is actually used throughout the Old Testament to describe uh, even many of the prophets, including Moses, and uh, so on and so forth from there. Even Abraham is, is described as Lord um, at one point or another. Uh, so the word Lord, which we're going to get into a little bit more on that in just a minute, the word Lord, as it's used in the Greek in Acts 2, is a little bit different than this idea of God. So he wasn't appointed God. He wasn't made into God. He was always God, and that's the point that I want to make here. Okay. Um, let's see here. He was also uh, selected as the means of salvation, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. And I bring this up because the second, um, the second appointment that we have is that as Messiah. And Messiah is another term for uh, Savior. So uh, here we see that he was um, also that. So in, um, here in... In Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, it says, Blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here. Even the plan of salvation had been put forth, according to this, before the foundation of the world. The idea that people would be saved through this Messiah was put forth before the world was even founded. So he was appointed to these two positions, but the ideas of these two positions were already um, already being uh, thought of well before man was created, well before the foundation of the world, as it's put here. Um, and, again, just to sum up this little section before we move on to the next, and that is he was already God, so he's not being appointed God. And second to that, there, there was an anticipation of Messiah, and he is that Messiah. He is the Christ, the, the one true redeemer. And um, we see that from the Ephesians. So um, let's talk about Lord some more. Uh, the Greek word here is uh, kurion. Uh, it's Greek for Lord, Master, or even King. So any of those can be used interchangeably here. So it's not necessarily the word for God, which we do see translated as Lord, if you're using one of the older translations, it's usually all caps Lord. So that's the all caps Lord meaning God. This is a Lord meaning master, meaning someone um, who has absolute ownership. And I can't emphasize that word absolute enough. He has absolute ownership of his people. Okay, so that's the Lord that we're talking about. So God, uh, God here in uh, 2.36 has appointed him to be absolute owner of something. We don't know what that quite is at this moment, but he's the absolute owner. He's the king of something. And when we say king, we immediately think kingdom. So he is the king of what? He's the king of his kingdom. We have a heavenly kingdom. In John 18, 36 through 37, uh, Jesus is being questioned by Pilate. And in his answer to whether or not he's a king, uh, Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. His kingdom is those that listen to his voice. 
His kingdom is those who are adhering to the truth. That's the kingdom that he has come to set up. And it's for this purpose that he was born. He was born to be appointed Lord or King over that kingdom. Um, now, this kingdom is predicted um, in Daniel two thirty six through forty five. I'm sure you're familiar with that set of verses. And we probably have time. I probably should eat up some time by reading the whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we know that this is a, um, done through a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And we uh, let's turn over there. We won't read the whole thing, but we will read the end of it. Uh, if you're familiar with the story in Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been suffering from a dream. And he's actually um, the, the brightest people of his day and age to tell him not only what the dream means, but what the dream actually consists of. Um, so it's pretty fast, fascinating when Daniel steps forward, just not only able to tell him the dream, but actually interpret the dream for him. Uh, and within that interpretation, he lists out a series of kingdoms. Each one would fall uh, to another kingdom until we get to the end of the interpretation. And um, let's see. This is Daniel 2. Daniel 2. Mm-hmm. Okay, so within this, that um, he predicts that a kingdom will be made up at the end of the other kingdoms. Uh, each one, each kingdom is represented by a part of a statue that's made. And the end is a kingdom that will be established that will be eternal. So an eternal kingdom will be established eventually with an eternal king. And that's what we're looking at in um, the kingdom that is being established uh, in Acts 2. One of the interesting things, and I like numbers, uh, I don't think they really mean anything, but they are a helpful way to remember things. Acts 2 is a fulfillment of Daniel 2 because the kingdom's being established that's spoken of in Daniel 2. So you can always kind of remember 2 to Daniel 2, prophecy, Acts 2, fulfillment of that prophecy. It's just an easy way to remember it. So what kingdom is being set up in Acts 2? That's the question that we have. Um, let's look at one more uh, piece of information. This is out of Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So that kingdom that was talked about being established over in Daniel now is being prophesied by Jesus as being something that some of the people that were standing there would not uh, taste death until that, is, that kingdom is established. Okay, so then we start thinking, well, what kingdom was established? And not only that, what kingdom was established, as it says here in uh, Mark 9, with power? Well, if we go back to what we were reading in Acts 2, the first thing that our... Um, the first part of it that I read from you to you guys in Acts 2, verses um, 1. One through four, I read this earlier. 
Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared uh, to them and rested on each of them. That's power. That's the power of God. That's the power of the Holy Spirit uh, coming to them so that they could speak in tongues. That's the sound of power, a rushing wind. That's a vision of power, flaming tongues. That's power. So the kingdom was, was established before they died, uh, before, any of them, before some of them tasted death. Uh, not all of them, but uh, some of them tasted death. And it said it would come with power, and there it is. The kingdom that was established, the kingdom that is spoken of, is the church. It was established that day on Pentecost. So the church is this king's kingdom. We studied in the previous lesson how he's the head of the church. Well, he's the king of the church. He's also the Lord and king of each and every one of us who are members of that church. Okay. Uh, As Lord, uh, he is uh, Lord of the body and of his people. If he is Lord, we must obey. Uh, I told you there's an overlapping theme from the previous one. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6, I'm going to read that aloud again. Um, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we pointed this out before. If he's the king, if he's Lord, then his kingdom is the church. And that means that the people, are, the members of the church are his people. And how would they know it? Well, they know it by keeping his commands. Remember when we went back, we said he had absolute ownership. If somebody has absolute ownership, they get to tell you what to do. That's just part of absolute power, absolute ownership. And so here it says that you keep his words, you would walk the way that he walked, you would honor him in that way, and that you would keep him in that way. Um, And so that is the Lord part of it. It means king or master. He's the king or master of the church. We are his people. We have to keep his commands because he has absolute ownership of us. Now, there's a second part. The second part that we've been talking about is the Christ part. Now, some of you may have a translation that actually translates that Messiah. So I'm going to talk about the word there. Um, Christ is actually a transliteration of a Greek word, Christos, um, which is in a translation of a Hebrew word, which is Messiah. And the Hebrew word for Messiah is actually anointed one. It was someone who was predicted from the Old Testament through prophecy would come and represent a salvation for his people. Now, many of the Jews misinterpreted those, um, thinking that it would be a earthly political type salvation as opposed to a spiritual uh, type salvation, which is what Jesus actually came to give. So um, they anticipated that kind of earthly political savior. But what they got was a savior that was fulfilled by prophecy, all the prophecies uh, from the Old Testament, 
uh, but came instead to save their souls. So let's take a few moments to look at a few of the prophecies. And I'm not going to read all of these Old Testament prophecies to you, but I will point out some of the ones that we're very familiar with and where they can be found in the Old Testament. He was going to be born, born of a virgin. That's Isaiah 7.14. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's Micah 5.2. He would be rejected by his people. That's Psalm 118.22-24. He would bring in a new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31.31. He would be betrayed. Zechariah 12.11-12. He would be pierced. Psalm 22, 1-31, as well as Isaiah 53. And he would be resurrected. That's Psalm 16, 8-11. Now, within each of those, we can see that the Old Testament predicted accurately, prophesied accurately, the existence of a Savior. And then when that Savior came, he would have to match those. We know that every one of those is true. And there's more. That's just a selection that I pulled out for us to review this evening. The point being... The Messiah that that was predicted is the Messiah, Jesus. And he did not come for a political um, aspiration. Instead, he came to save them them, uh, from their sins. So, as Christ, Messiah, um, his blood redeems. So, how is he going to save them? He saves them through his blood. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews 9. This is going to be 22 through 28. And that's Hebrews 9, 22 through 28. It reads, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. It's blood. It's always been blood, um, even from the um, time that they wrote for the um, Leviticus priests and how they should make atonements, how they should enter into the uh, earthly tent of the tabernacle, into the most holies of holies um, where the ark was kept. Blood was required. It was, a, it was always an atonement for sin, uh, but it was temporary. It could not save them from their, from their sins. Uh, so it required blood here as well, and it was the blood of Jesus Christ who was laid down as a single sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, to enter into the heavenly version of those earthly things. And it's that blood then that saves us. Yes, Mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, in, in the um, in the first John cha- chapter that we kind of read and reread, now we I think read it three times now. Um, that particular one points out he works as an advocate. So I think of it as almost kind of a, a lawyer type duty. He uh, appeases God. It says he's the propitiation, uh, which would mean that he works to reconcile us with a king. Uh, in that case, God the Father. So he sits to his right and he advocates on our behalf, and it's his. It was his righteous blood that even gives him the right to be there in the presence of God. Because we know from Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that God can't even be in the presence of evil. And so we aren't allowed to really approach it. But who can? The righteous son can approach it. Therefore, he can sit on our behalf as Messiah, as Lord, but also as Messiah, to advocate for us. Show uh, God the Father that we uh, are his people, and he advocates on our behalf. So even though we're sinful, the righteous one helps cover our sins and advocates to the Father. And like you said, those words, on our behalf, are extremely important. And only on behalf of his people. That's the other thing we all have to remember. Yeah, of his kingdom. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. Um, I have one more verse um, on... No, I actually have two more verses on this, and we'll look back at that. Actually, we just covered First John again, so I'll throw that one out. Um, let's look at Romans 8.34. Again, that's Romans 8.34, and I'm going to run out of material before the end of the <laughs> class, but um, uh, we'll see how far we get, and maybe we can try to answer some questions at the end. Romans 8.34 says... Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here again, that's another emphasis on that idea that here he is, uh, righteous Jesus, perfect, slain lamb, paid for it with his own blood, and is now operating and interceding on our behalf uh, with the Father. So he, he plays that role, too. He's been appointed that role. So if, if I can go back and kind of uh, reorganize the whole thing, put it back out there again for everybody and say it without having all the details in, I would say it like this. Jesus, from the beginning, was God. He's always been God. He was the creative force for all things that have been created. Jesus, as man, was appointed to be two things, Lord, King of his people, and the sacrifice as Messiah for his people. What I see a lot of people doing in the world is they want to accept him as one but not the other. I think if there's a lesson that we could, be learned, that we could learn from this is that he's both at the same time. Um, you can't have one without the other. Some people want to make him Savior, without obeying his commands. They want all the salvation part of it, all the covering, the propitiation for their sin. They want him advocating on their behalf, but they don't want to obey what he said you had to obey. And then there are some people who want to honor him and and receive no salvation for it. Um, 
it's, it's, it's very odd. But I think that in order for us to be his people, we have to do both. We have to recognize him as, first, our Messiah, Messiah that was predicted, and um, the one that's going to sit and advocate for us, and then also obey his commands. Now, there's overlapping. Um, I realize that if you really study deep into the Bible, you're going to find that both of these appointments overlap with one another. Both the Messiah and the king are going to be together. But I think if you look at them individually, you can see that there's a requirement on our part. In order for us to be the people who are saved, we have to obey. And that really goes back to that First John um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 that we've studied several times tonight. I, I guess with that, uh, minutes left? Okay, so uh, I will open it up to questions if anybody has questions. If not, we can play Bible trivia. That's what we do in the young, young adults class. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Absolutely. Uh, yes, sir. I think, I, think uh, I would agree with everything you said there. And there's one thing that I maybe um, didn't emphasize enough. And I, actually, as I was writing this, I was afraid I was going to go over. I should have known better. Uh, and that was to examine all the proper nouns in the sentence, which would include something that, that uh, Lon pointed out. And that is, there's another proper noun that I skipped. I didn't emphasize it as much. It's not that I skipped it. I didn't read it. But it's there. And that is God. And so who did the appointments? God. And this God the Father appointed him to these positions. And that should emphasize his authority as well. Because who does it come from? It comes from Almighty God. Are there any other thoughts or questions, things that I could have rephrased or done better with? Yeah, so um, there again, even from, from birth as his uh, earthly existence started, the actual incarnation of, of Christ as a baby um, was recognized by some to have those honors even, even at that time.
Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah, and going along with that same thought, I believe, uh, when we look at him being mindful of us, and that is appointing um, a righteous Lord over us, um, that gives us the, um, the avenue for both salvation, but connection to the Father for prayer, um, for the other aspects of our blessings that we have through Jesus. I think that's a, I think that's a great point, uh, especially when we look at uh, belonging to his kingdom and belonging to him uh, and, and having, having such a, a great Savior, but also a great and almighty God that, that work together. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So as a king, we do belong to him, and as such, we do have that name. And as his kingdom, we also have a name that belongs to him. Uh, we're the ecclesia, the, the group that have called out people that belong to Christ. And there again, that name is something else um, as Christians individually, but also collectively as his, um, as his church, as his body, as his ecclesia. So I, I would agree with that. And it's what, what's, what's a kingdom without, without getting a name on it as well. Yeah. Uh, part of that authority is um, duplicative in that sense that he has authority over us, but at the same time he takes care of us. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to wrap it up with that. We've got a couple more minutes left, but I'm going to save that for a prayer. Um, Daniel, would you mind leading us in a prayer this evening?